0: You're about to hear a Lord's Day sermon that was preached at Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois. This sermon comes from a series called That You May Believe. In this series, we take a long journey through the gospel according to John to discover who Jesus is and why it matters. We hope you enjoy this audio.
1: hear the word of the disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first, found his own, nope, he first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him, whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, You will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Okay, um, as we have been in, we're only like three weeks into our new sermon series, um, the Gospel of John, and I'm still super excited about this. Uh, the next year or so that we'll have to camp out in this really epic book of the Bible. Um, But we come to a passage today that maybe at the first pass, as you were hearing it read, it doesn't seem uh, very exciting. There's not a lot lot of hype going on here. It might seem a little bit vanilla because all we have, first of all, there's a little bit of recycled material. John the Baptist says what he said last week, behold, the Lamb of God. Okay. So we got that. And otherwise Jesus seems to be walking, walking around. He likes to take walks by the river. Um, and he's calling some dudes to come hang out with him. And and so it seems kind of at face value, maybe not super exciting, but in reality, this passage is loaded with significance. In fact, like trying to sift through things in my studies this week, it's, it's sort of hard to narrow down which, which route we're going to take today. And so it's just so much packed in here. And, and what I want to do to help us at least focus on one thing is just narrow the view a little bit. I wanna, what I want to do is tackle this text in two parts. I'll give you two eyes today. If you like alliteration, today's your day. We're going to talk about the identity of Jesus and the invitation of Jesus. These two things, the identity and the invitation of Jesus. Now, as we've set out on this journey through John, I've said that one of John's primary objectives is for us to see who Jesus is. He wants us to know the real Jesus, not a Jesus of our imaginations or our own invention, but a Jesus as has been revealed to us through the word of God or even the word who's become flesh. And so what is going on in this passage it's it's just heavy on the identity piece about Jesus. In this passage alone there are eight different identity claims about who Jesus is. 8 In these verses, eight different claims, different facets of Jesus' identity of who Jesus is. Now we get some of the basic stuff, the historical, uh, contextual stuff. We're told that Jesus is from Nazareth, so geographically he's linked to a a literal place. Some place on the map you can draw a circle on and be like, yep, Jesus Jesus laid, like his bed was there, that's where he stayed, right? We're told he was in Nazareth, from Nazareth, Um, he was the son of Joseph. Now, we've already read through John 1 um, to see that, that Joseph isn't the biological father of Jesus, but... In an earthly sense, Jesus is a sort of a, a surrogate father, um, filling the, 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 the earthly father role through Jesus's life. And so he's attached to a historical place and a historical people. Um, and then he's acknowledged, as we move on, as a rabbi, or, or, which is the, the word for teacher, um, Jewish word for teacher. Now, that, that title isn't too strange. It would have been a title given to people, sort of a, a gesture of honor um, to call somebody a, a rabbi. But where things start to raise eyebrows as, as John unpacks who Jesus really is, is, is when you get to these titles or these, this, this facet of his identity as the Lamb of God. And we spent time on that last week when, when they start saying this is the Messiah, the Christ, which is referencing um, the Old Testament. That there's a promise of an anointed one who's going to restore Israel to the, its intended glory. We see one of the disciples that we'll meet, he says that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, of both the law of Moses and of the prophets. So there's this this culmination of everything that's happened before that's summarized here in Jesus. He's called the Son of God, again, another title we've interacted with, the King of Israel and the Son of Man. So all of these are different identities, speaking to different facets of Christ's Identity And and honestly, it's it's way too much to cover in one Sunday. And so what I want to do is narrow it down to two. Two pieces of Jesus's identity. So why don't you join me here in uh, verse 30. Let's go 35. uh, Start here and we'll we'll highlight um, these first two. The next day again, John, who's John the baptizer, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this. And they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to him, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, what we're seeing in this passage right here um, that John the Baptizer, as he was doing his ministry, he was there were people who were following him. He had his own disciples who were listening to his preaching and teaching. And, and as soon as John announces, he says, behold, the Lamb of God, these two disciples of John the baptizer hear this and go, oh, this guy's got my attention now. Which you, you might think that John might be jealous about this, but really he's not, after what we saw last week. He very much knew that, that he was pointing forward to this, this Messiah, the Christ, the Lamb of God. And as these two new disciples turn to follow Jesus, Jesus sees them. He turns and he asks them, what are you seeking? Why are you coming after me? Now, that, that's a probing question. That, that, that question will make you uh, examine your motives. What exactly are these guys after as they set out to follow Jesus? And, and I want to throw the same question right back into your lap. What is... What is your draw to Jesus? When you see Jesus and you start moving toward him, what is it about him that you're looking for? What is that thing? Now, it's very easy to seek Jesus as a means to an end, to treat Jesus as some sort of stepping stone where in order to get to where I want to be, whether it's success or wealth or, or find a spouse or whatever it might be, to use Jesus as that stepping stone to get to that place, whether it be passing a test, trying to get a job, trying to look successful in the eyes of others. We, we just to go to Jesus, Jesus, would you please give me this thing? Now, maybe maybe you're in a crisis or a hard time, even right now as, as I'm talking, that that's causing you to ask these questions. Like, who is Jesus? What, what does he have to offer me? And you're turning to him for just this quick and easy fix. Now, it's, it's true that times like this, hard times, crisis can make us aware of our need. Times like this help us see that man, we, we really are vulnerable, that, that we do need help from outside of ourselves, so it's right to cry out for help. But there's a difference between asking Jesus to give us something and finding that thing in Jesus. There's a difference between asking Jesus to give us comfort and finding comfort in Jesus. There's a difference between asking Jesus to give us riches and finding all treasures of riches in Jesus Christ. And what reveals the difference between the two is, is what happens when you get that. See, if you get that thing, you're asking Jesus for peace or security, you ask him you know, for that, that comfort, and you get it, and you're happy and content, and then you just sort of let Jesus go right, you're ready to move on. That reveals that you're more after that thing than you are Jesus. That whole time, you you didn't really want Jesus, you just wanted the thing that he could get you. This often is what happens when we hear about Jesus, there's there's this draw to the thing and not Jesus to himself, but John is showing us that, that everything that we're looking for is in Christ, it's in his person. Now, as Andrew and John turn to follow Jesus, and I I think this disciple, he's not named, so Andrew is named in this passage, and the other disciple is anonymous, anonymous, and and I I have, we'll just call him John, because I I think it is him. Uh, But we see these guys see Jesus. They are asked this question, what are you seeking? And the response helps us to see that they're really seeking Jesus, this is shown in the fact that, that they turn to Jesus and they call him teacher. They say rabbi. Now, this is that first identity. In fact, two times in this passage, Jesus is called rabbi. We're gonna look at this. This is the first one. Uh, and the reason why they call Jesus teacher or rabbi is they because, because they see Jesus and they know that he has something that they, they he has wisdom. He has knowledge. John the Baptist has proclaimed the special identity of the Lamb of God, And they want to know about this. They want to hear from the Lamb of God himself. And so they ask him, where are you staying? In other words, they're saying, hey, can we crash with you at your Airbnb? (laughs) We we want a little bit of time to be with you, to to hear your teaching, to, to learn and to be discipled by you. They're not looking for this quick handout. What they want is time with Jesus. They want Jesus himself. Now, this is the very beginning of this discipleship whole thing. So it's hard to say that that they really knew what they were getting into. I don't think they really did totally know what they were getting into. But here you see this gravitational pull of Jesus. They see it. They want to know. They want to be with Jesus. And being with Jesus means learning from Jesus. Being with Jesus means hearing from Jesus, being taught by Jesus, being discipled by Jesus. What these guys are on the brink of here is is now a a lifetime of discipleship, a lifetime of following Jesus. Now, our, our modern concept of discipleship has been greatly truncated, it's been flattened tremendously. Um, where, where we have the tendency, as we talk about discipleship in the modern era, the, the tendency to compartmentalize different parts of our lives. Okay, so we say, well, Jesus can touch this part of my life, uh, but this part's off awful, awful. We can could, we could talk, Jesus can have my Sunday mornings, but my Friday nights belong to me. Jesus can have um, my devotion time in the morning, but my sexuality, that belongs to me. And so we've, we've compartmentalized, we've put up fences around parts of our lives where are off limits to Jesus that we don't want him to touch. And so we've made this compartmentalization of things. We've created a false, sacred and secular divide in our lives. Things that Jesus has claim on and things that I maintain possession of. Now in the modern era, technology has not necessarily helped us. There's been good things of technology, but there's also been drawbacks, as as speaking of discipleship and technology. Technology affords us basically a buffet, a smorgasbord of different teachers, different voices that we can listen to as long as we like what they have to say, right? Uh, I can subscribe to their podcast, I can follow their YouTube channel, I can pick and choose as I so desire. And one of the things in recent years that's made modern discipleship even more uh, less productive, I guess, is that COVID. COVID has made made things more sterile, um, more. Um, and what I mean by this is there's no real person on person interaction. It's easy just to have everything mediated through a screen. And so this this idea of discipleship that it can be technologically driven, not, not necessarily rooted in relationship. I can segment my life into different ways where Jesus says something to this but doesn't get to say anything of that. Our, our modern, modern discipleship has been greatly flattened. But the first century concept of discipleship is vastly different. First of all, a few things. First of all, first century discipleship would have been profoundly relational. A lot of face-to-face time, and I'm not talking like FaceTime, like through the screen, Um, but like person-to-person, my eyes looking into your eyes, I'm reading your lips as you talk, like face-to-face interaction, deeply, profoundly relational. Relational. Second thing is that learning isn't merely gaining knowledge. See, this this can be one of the pitfalls of of podcast discipleship is I'm just learning things and my head is ballooning full of great information, probably, hopefully, but I don't actually know how to execute. I'm not gaining wisdom or skill. I'm not having people come alongside me to teach me and instruct me how to use this knowledge that I now have. And so it stays very much in this cognitive, cerebral realm and not working itself out into practical living. First century discipleship, that was the aim, to give you knowledge and wisdom that would lead to skill, wise living in a fallen world. The third thing about first century discipleship is that it would be comprehensive. It was not a, there was no way to compartmentalize life. There was no like, okay, this part my teacher gets to speak to, but this part he doesn't get to speak to. It's like all of it is laid in front of this teacher. Whoever that teacher would be, that, that disciple maker would basically get to speak into every aspect of life. Comprehensive. It's a total way of being. And finally, another um, trait of first century discipleship would be that, that a, a pupil or, or a, a, a someone being discipled is fully devoted to the teaching of, of one teacher. They're not bouncing around, they're aligned, they're, they're, they're hanging on to this one teacher, constantly listening to their teacher, not just the teaching, but the whole way of life. So there's full devotion of practicing the way of, the, uh, of, of this disciple maker. Now, the way this all gets accomplished is that a pupil was constantly on the heels of his teacher. Oh, like always with them, following them. And we see, we'll see this with Jesus' disciples, that they're with him wherever he goes. Their eyes are on him, they're listening, they're attentive, they see things as they're taking place. They're observing and getting to engage in this relational dance of learning. And for the next three-ish years, this would be the enti- this would be Andrew and John's relationship with Jesus. The what they're starting right now is the beginning of something special. And they aren't the only disciples. Um, we see actually today five of the twelve disciples are called. We see um, Andrew and John and Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. Who's? Um, it's believed that Nathaniel is also Bartholomew. So, different accounts. List different names, but anyway, so five of these twelve disciples come out, and it's interesting that Nathaniel um, later on in the passage calls Jesus by the same name of Rabbi. Right, he's recognizing Jesus as a teacher, as this one who's to instruct, who's to give guidance in his own way. But the question is, what kind of Jesus, or what kind of teacher is Jesus? Is he just your, your ordinary rabbi teacher? Maybe he's skilled at handling the word of God. But, but what the scripture tells us is that Jesus is a special kind of teacher. In fact, he's one who teaches with authority. He could, Jesus could teach in a way that no other rabbi, no other teacher can teach. And this is rooted in in the title that Jesus gives himself in verse 51, which is the second facet of his identity that we wanna look at today, when Jesus calls himself the son of man. The authority of Jesus to be this kind of teacher is rooted in the reality that he is, called, he is the son of man. This is Jesus's favorite title for himself. Son of man, used over. And, and this is often a misunderstood title um, it 's one of the most common, but also the most commonly misunderstood because when we when we hear this, um, people often th- think that this is to call Jesus the Son of Man is an expression of his humanity right to be called the Son of Man because we have the Son of God, which is obviously connecting him with this unique relationship that he has with God the Father, but then they think the Son of the Man must be to to kind of link him with Humanity. Now, it is true that Jesus is linked with humanity, and we even see this in this passage today in verse 45, where Jesus is linked to his humanity and identifying with, with Nazareth and his, his pseudo quasi father, Joseph. Um, but actually, what this title, the Son of Man, is a reference to is to Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. Um, this is a, uh, a prophecy a dream, actually, that that Daniel has. Um, and, And let me read it to you here. We'll turn to Daniel. It'll be up on the screen. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And I saw in the night visions, this is Daniel speaking, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days He was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people's nation and languages should serve him and his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this reference is actually really profound in the sense that, that Jesus is referring back to this, this passage where one like a son of man who's given dominion, who's given glory, who's given a kingdom, that all of the nations come and worship and bow down at his name. Jesus is saying, that's me. He's this supreme heavenly being who's sent by God. And if you keep reading down into the passage later on in verse 26 and 27 of Daniel chapter 7, he says, I'm coming to judge the world. That Jesus will topple the evil world superpowers, the ones that are are resistant to God, that are rebellious against God, and Jesus will destroy them, and in their void, He will build an everlasting kingdom where His dominion will be eternally recognized, and glory will be His now and forever. Now, when you see Daniel chapter 7, and the fact that the glory, the dominion, the kingdom belongs to the, this one, this son of man, um, and, and you flip back to see what uh, Nathaniel calls Jesus later on, he calls him the king of Israel, you can kind of see how uh, he doesn't get the whole picture. Like he's selling Jesus a little bit short. It's not just that Jesus is the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of the cosmos. It's all his. Because one day, all people, all nations, all languages, not just Israel, will come and serve Jesus. Now, what's cool about this is, is also, as uh, if, if you read um, all, it says that as Jesus receives the kingdom and the dominion um, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, these things will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High God. So it's not just that Jesus possesses them but he he shares them with his people. Now, when I hear this, when I was studying this passage this week, I, there was a connection that I've never seen here before, and maybe maybe you can hear the overtones here with me, but the great commission is lingering in the air. When Jesus says, "All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go, make disciples." And so we see all these things sort of fitting together. Jesus proclaims himself as the son of man. And when you hold the the reality of the son of man and Jesus being called teacher or rabbi, what we see is that Jesus is a very unique kind of teacher. He is the heaven-sent teacher who comes not just to reveal some tips and tricks for life, the heaven-sent teacher who comes to reveal God himself. In fact, one commentator, um, Ed Klink, says, without the Son of Man, the rest of men cannot know God. Jesus comes as the unique teacher, Son of Man, revealing to us God the Father. But he not only reveals God to us, as you look at verse 51 here, here he's, he's talking. it's hard to fit all of this together in its sort of sequential piece. But let me just highlight this. When Jesus says to, to Nathanael, um, you'll see greater things than these. He said that, truly, truly, I said to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending with on the Son of Man. What Jesus is saying here, not only am I going to show you the way to God, I am the way to God. He's revealing that Jesus, that he said, I am the gate to heaven. Now this carries all kinds of overtones or allusions back to um, Jacob has a dream of a ladder in Genesis 28. He sees heavens open and angels ascending and descending and Jesus says, I am that. I am the gate that opens up heaven. So this is Jesus's profound identity. The son of man, the teacher, going to show us God and show us the way to God. Now to Andrew's, to jump back into the story, to Andrew's uh, question, John's question, when they asked Jesus, where are you staying? Jesus's response to them is, come, come and see. According to John, the first statement of Jesus's ministry is an invitation. Jesus is opening his arms, he's saying, come check it out get your eyes on this for yourself you're gonna want to you're gonna want to see this now these guys that approach jesus there there really isn't anything that special about them they're just ordinary men and jesus says come come to me come and see now, we see another invitation that Jesus issues in verse 43. He's given to Philip later on. He tells Philip, he literally just says, follow me. And Philip's like, okay, all right. That's what I'm doing now. Now, when we talk about um, invitation here, so I'm saying Jesus is inviting them, but I need you to know that, that this invitation is not like a request of, Jesus would like your presence on this day and day. Will you say yes or will you say no? Jesus isn't extending an invitation, uh, running the risk of being denied. When Jesus says, come and see, or follow me, he's saying this with the authority of the Son of Man. He's calling these men to follow him. Now, John 6, I'm trying not to jump too far ahead as we go through this because it's like, you know, pulling, it's like revealing little by little. But I got to jump ahead to John chapter 6, 44, where it says that none are able to come on their own. None are able to come to Jesus. None are able to come to the Father on their own, except for those who God draws to himself. And so this is what Jesus is doing. And the authority of the Son of Man, he's drawing men to himself. And when Jesus calls you to himself, you cannot do anything but come. This is the irresistibility of the invitation of Jesus. So we see Andrew and John, they come and see. And they go back, chill with Jesus as an Airbnb. They talk to him for a little bit. What they think was an invitation to a place when Jesus says, come and see. They, they think Jesus is talking about his place, but really this invitation to come and see is an invitation to come and see a person. Jesus said, come and see me. Get, get your eyes on the Son of Man, the God who is in flesh. To be called into a relationship with Jesus or be called to Jesus, is to be called into a relationship with Jesus. You cannot have Jesus' teaching. It's not like I can subscribe to his teaching, but I don't want to deal with, with his life. I don't want to deal with his morality. It's a whole lump deal. When you're called to Jesus, you're called with a relation, into a relationship with Jesus himself, his teaching, his life, his ministry, all of it comes together. And this coming and seeing is, is an initial act, but it's also an ongoing reality. When we come and see who Jesus is, there is this, this point where if we first lay eyes on Jesus, where we begin the journey of learning and following, being discipled by Jesus, but it goes more, it goes further. It's not just a, uh, it's not like a, uh, uh, what do you call it, Um, I'm blanking here, a scenic outlook where you go to it once and say, yeah, that's nice, and then you just move on with your life. This is a constant place. And this calling, this invitation to come and see marks the beginning of the discipleship journey for these men. This is the beginning of really seeing who Jesus is And for them, it starts with a literal, physical sight. They get to actually lay eyes on Jesus. For us, Jesus allows the eyes of our hearts to be opened to see him. And, And we... Those of us who don't get to see Jesus in the flesh are commended for the great faith it takes to see Jesus for who he is. But we have to realize this, this initial sight, this initial lane eyes is not the end of it. It's, it's just the beginning. We're not just catching a glimpse. This is, this is the scenic outlook for the rest of our life. To come and to see Jesus is the constant posture of a Christian. Now, it's very common for Christians to have these mountaintop moments. Like at the very beginning of your journey, your eyes are opened. You see Jesus like you've never seen him before. There's something captivating. I mean, it's just like, it's it's just a high. It's like a spiritual moment that is, man, something powerful, something profound that happens in this. It's new, it's exciting, and you you just dive right in. You, you're loving your missional community life. You get plugged into a missional community. You're doing life with people. You're reading your Bible regularly. You're listening to the word of God, being preached. You're participating. You love the Lord's day to worship with the saints. You love serving. You, I mean, you just, this whole beginning of a new era, this new life with Christ is so exciting. But then slowly the shine starts to wear off. Slowly, you start sort of pulling back a bit from community. You, you read your Bible less. You pray less. Somehow, your Sunday mornings start filling up, and it's so hard to get here. And, and before you know it, that, that great view that you once had, it's like you totally forgot about it. You no longer are coming to see. To come and to see isn't arriving. To come and to see is a constant posture of discipleship. We're, we're constantly coming back with our eyes on Jesus. It's to be seeking Jesus even after Jesus has found you. You want to know him more. And it's this posture of coming and seeing that su- starts and sustains discipleship. This is what it means to be Jesus centered you keep coming back to Christ to view him in his glory now one thing about um, one thing that happens when when we have this constant posture of coming in to see Christ for who he is is um, this 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 spiritual vortex like thing happens and we see it here with the very first disciples um You come and see, you catch a glimpse. You know, you're sort of brought in and then you're ready to go show others. Jesus calls you in, then sends you right back out on mission. And we see this twice in this passage where Andrew, um, he comes to Jesus, he listens to him, catches a glimpse of Jesus and he goes and he's got to tell his brother, Peter, about this Jesus guy, right? The Christ, the Messiah, we found him. We see the same thing with Philip. Philip sees Jesus, he's following Jesus, and he has to go and tell his buddy Nathaniel. he says, we found the guy that the whole Old Testament's about. We we gotta tell you, and and actually Philip's uh, invitation to Nathaniel is the exact same thing. Come and see. You, You need to see this for yourself. You need to come and see. Now, what this shows us First of all, is that one of the first steps in discipleship, this is not like an expert level um, task for Christian discipleship. One of the first steps of discipleship is telling other people about Jesus. We have this in our head that in order to tell people about Jesus, I have to rise to expert level uh, disciple of Jesus before I have any sort of credibility. These guys literally just met Jesus the the day before, and they're like, you guys got to see this. I mean, what, what would it take for us to that, have that kind of excitement, to, to have our gaze on Jesus in a way that just drives us to talk about him? This is not an expert level of discipleship. This is the beginning of discipleship. In fact, you, you can't be a disciple of Jesus without talking about Jesus. Now, what we do see with this, talking about Jesus, is they're not going out to street corners and doing this open-air preaching, which there's, there's a place for that. We see that later on in the book of Acts. But the people that they go to first are those they already have a relationship with. What we're seeing is this relationally driven invitation where one friend has seen and experienced Jesus and they want their buddy to come in and get in on this too. Now, this is probably, um, commentators say, this is the primary and most effective mission strategy for the church. Friend-to-friend mission, invitation, evangelism. This is the way that draws people in. And we even say that discipleship can only happen when you're living in community and on mission. That's the way Jesus did it. We see he's creating a community, and this community is on mission. Discipleship is happening right here. And so in one sense, you can say, when you look at this, you see these first disciples, they come and they they see, they're following Jesus and they go right back out. You can say that the mission of the church is summed up in Jesus's first statement, come and see. Let me just ask, like, are you saying that to people? Are you saying, come and see? Come and see what the Lord has done in my family. Come sit at the table with us. Now we're not gonna be perfect. Um, My kids are a little bit chaos around dinner time but we wanna show you how Christ has changed even our most ordinary routines. Hey, come and see my missional community. Come and see the work that God is doing in the lives of real, ordinary people. Hey, come to Sunday gathering. Will you come and see? Like, this this group of people, there's really nothing super special about us, but the Lord seems to be doing something here. This is the posture of a, a missionary. You cannot be a missionary without making those invitations of come and see. See, when Jesus calls you, the invitation is not meant to stop there. Jesus has called you so that he could get to other people through you. Like this is his divine will. Like he made it this way so that by your evangelism, by your missional living, Jesus can get to other places. He wants to use you for that. So the invitation cannot stop with us. It keeps going. And the more that you see Jesus for who he is, the more you want others to see him as well. Now, maybe, maybe you're sitting here this morning because somebody invited you. Some, somebody invited you to come and see. And you might be a little bit skeptical about this Jesus guy. You, you don't know what to think. And, and you're really not alone because even Nathaniel, who's in this text here, um, when Philip invites him and says, "Hey, come check out this Jesus from Nazareth," he's like, "Can anything good come out of Nazareth?" Um, he's like, I, "What's the big deal about this Jesus from Nazareth?" So Jesus approaches him. He, he sees Nathaniel, Actually, Nathaniel comes to Jesus. In verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and he said, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus says to Nathanael, before your eyes even caught glimpse of me, before you even had the inclination that I was even a person on the map, Jesus says, I saw you. I, I already knew you. Now, there, there's some significance. It's hard for us to pinpoint exactly what, what, what he's referring to when he says, I saw you under the fig tree, um, there's a lot of speculation about what the significance of a fig tree is. Um, one of the common ideas is that a fig tree is a place of meditation. It'd be a deep reflection of prayer petition. You'd go there, it sort of provides a shelter. It, it signifies coming under the shelter of God. Um, we don't know exactly what Jesus is referring to, but whatever it was, it was significant enough for Nathanael to hear. Jesus knew that he was there under the fig tree. For Nathaniel, to know that Jesus already had eyes on him. He already saw him in that moment. He knew exactly what Jesus was referencing. Now, you might be in a spot like that today. You, you got a fig tree moment. Maybe, maybe you're there crying out for help. Maybe you're feeling overlooked. You're hurting. You've, you've, you've come into a... Uh, a very unpleasant uh, encounter with sin and brokenness in this world, and you're just crying out. Maybe you're at one of the lowest points in your life. Jesus sees you. And before he says, come and see, Jesus has already locked eyes on you. He knows where you're hurting. He's already, the whole reason why Jesus was there in the first place is because he had seen the state of humanity, Jesus moves towards us. He's the initiator in this whole relationship. Jesus comes towards us so that we could see him for what he is and what he does, who he is and what he does. The redeemer, the Messiah, the anointed one who will heal, restore, and redeem God's people. See, if you're coming to Jesus and you don't know if, you don't, if you're skeptical, Jesus already dialed into you. What's to stop you from coming to Him? To, to learning more about Jesus. Now, this whole passage, this whole passage, I, I think, um, you've got identity and invitation. Um, You've got these themes of seeing, like coming and seeing, following and believing. He says, Jesus says to Nathanael, because I said that, you were under the fig tree, you believe now. And he has this massive profession of faith. Right? So we've got seeing, believing, you've got identity, invitation. As we make our way through John's gospel, there will be a time in John 18 where people come seeking Jesus this time, it's not, um, it's not people who have good intentions. It's not people who are really eager to know who this Jesus is. It's people who have already made up their mind. Armed soldiers who are seeking Jesus because they think he's a troublemaker. Who will humiliate him, and at their hands, he will be crucified. And prophecy in Zechariah 12.10 says that they will look upon him who they pierced, that they will see. This is what it means to come and see. We're not just seeing a good man who lived a good life. We're seeing the best man who died our own death who paid the price for our sins, who absorbed our brokenness so that we would be mended. And so when we come and see Jesus, we see the one who saw us in our sin first, who made the first move, who took initiative, who did something so that in his death, as he takes on death, he can give us life. And so yes, we come to Jesus to be discipled, to learn his way. But to come to Jesus, to see Jesus, is to come and to find life in his name that God has given us. We didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to position ourselves for it. But in the person and work of Christ, God is revealed. So whether you are a longtime disciple of Jesus or just asking, kicking the tires, asking questions, The invitation is still come and see follow me and find life let's pray father thank you thank you that you have sent jesus for us lord that that all of the the prophets all of the the law summed up in him everything that that you've ever been pointing toward it is christ and this morning we want to see and know jesus to a degree that that we've never seen and known before. We we can't white-knuckle ourselves to that place. We're reliant upon your spirit to open up our eyes, to give our our hearts the ability to see by faith. And as we see Jesus for who he is, Lord, I I pray that you would make us his disciples, Um, not just disciples in name, um, but disciples in reality, people who are, are singularly focused on following the way of Christ. Men and women, um, who, who know that we have a great problem of sin and Jesus has dealt with it, and so we, our gaze is turned to Him, our great redeemer. And this morning we thank you, Lord, for this meal that's been prepared for us uh, that helps us to, to reckon this reality, to see um, spiritually see what's going on here in, in this work of redemption through Christ. Will this meal nourish us as we continue um, coming and seeing the real Jesus? so that we would have life in his name. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.